Good morning and welcome. We're glad you're with us today. I'm so happy to be starting a brand new series with you today entitled Standing Firm, Spiritual Stability in Our Times. The series is Spiritual Stability. The title of the message is Standing Firm. We're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn there. You know, in this passage it is written to Christian believers. Uh, it is written to those who have uh, peace with God through Christ Jesus. And yet, you know, once we have the peace of God flooding our lives, we still live in a world that seems to be on a, a trajectory of towards everything that is unpeaceful. And so how do we maintain that peace? How do we keep the peace of God ruling in our hearts and reigning within our souls? How do we stay in God's very own presence as we look at the news and we look at the things surrounding us that uh, uh, seem to assault the very uh, essence of the peace that we have in our hearts and in our souls and our life. And so in this discussion today, we're going to talk about, we're going to begin this series on spiritual stability and on the concept of standing firm. Standing firm. This will be a an eight message series that starts today, the first one being, as I said, standing firm, and we're going to exposit uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So if you'll take your copy of God's Word and follow along with me, it says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. How in the world do we have spiritual stability in the times that we're living in, where there seems to be so much instability but more than that, we are living in a time without question where the church of Jesus Christ is under attack. It's under attack, just as Jesus predicted it would be. It's under attack as we read in uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, where he, where he warned, In this world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Paul echoed the Lord's warning when he said in Acts 14, 22, 
through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And not surprisingly, the church has faced persecution from its inception. If you want to read more about it, you can go to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, or you can look at Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 41 as well. And so let me give you three main points today just from verse 1. Verse 1 again says, Therefore, my beloved, and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So the first thing is the urgency for standing firm. The urgency for standing firm. Why? The times. The times in which we live. The assault on the church comes mainly from three sources. You might want to write these down. The first one is the world is tempting. The world with all its allurements, and boy are there a lot of them, endeavors to entice the believers. Uh, it also persecutes the church both openly and subtly. And the church dares not compromise with the world because as James says in James chapter 4 verse 4, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God and and John warns us if anyone John warns us if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him that's in 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 then also the flesh is vulnerable not only does the world offer all of these temptations but the flesh is vulnerable the flesh the believer's fallen unredeemed humanness is another source of the attack upon the church. Jesus exhorted us in Matthew 26, 41, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even after his salvation, Paul uh, could still cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. So you have, in here, you have this concept of the world is tempting, the flesh is vulnerable, but there's another attack upon the church today, and it is the devil's lion-like aggression against the people of God. The devil is lion-like in his aggression, energizing both the world and the flesh, is the devil, is of the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, as the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. So the world is tempting, the flesh is vulnerable, and the devil is lion-like in his aggression against us. Well, as a, as a result, church life involves a great amount of instability. There's a great amount of instability. And so the issue of spiritual stability is very much on Paul's heart right here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. It is an issue the church will face. It's true that the Philippian church had a special love bond with, with Paul. We read about it over here in verse 15 of chapter 4. He says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. I've always said that and believe that the Philippian church was 
Paul's sweetheart church. It was his sweetheart church. Nor did Paul have to sharply rebuke them like he did the Galatian churches or, or for their uh, wavering doctrinally for, as they, they were bewitched by another gospel. Nor did he have to rebuke them for tolerating sin like he did the Corinthian church. But he does not mean that the church, this does not mean that the church at Philippi was all that it should have been and that there was in fact no instability there. In fact, there was. And he wants them to be strengthened. And there's a hint throughout the whole epistle of the destabilizing threat facing the Philippian congregation. If you'll go with me over here to Philippians chapter 1, verse 28 through 30, it says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflicts which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So see, they're just like us. They were dealing with the temptations of the world. They were dealing with the vulnerability of the flesh. And yes, they were dealing with the lion-like aggression of the devil. And so the, and, and there's something that we see in verse 2 and 3 that takes place. Um, not only were they experiencing persecution, but there was division in the church. There was division in the church. There was a lack of unity. He says in verse 2, "...make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose." In chapter 2, verse 2. He says, make my joy complete. Go, go over there. Look at it. Verse 2 of chapter 2, fulfill my joy. That was the New American Standard. Here it is in the New King James. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one-mindedness. In one mind, he says. And then in verse 14, look what he says. He goes down here, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. If there was one thing I could... If I had a magic button today that, that would mute anything, any noise in the world. You know, I, I, I live outside of the, the town and the country of my home, but I can still hear the train when it toots its horn or it, it rumbles down the track. Uh, I can hear the highway. Um, I can hear the coyotes at night. Um, when I'm in town, I can hear the cars passing. I can hear the church bells ringing. Uh, the courthouse uh, sounding that it's noon o'clock, the fire horn when it goes off, all of those things. But if there was anything I could mute in this world, it would be complaining. I mean, it's just complaining, complaining, complaining. And, and here Paul specifically says, do all things. Say all with me. All. That's right. All. A-L-L. -L. It means do all things without complaining and disputing. There are some subjects we cannot even have with people without them finishing our sentences uh, for us because of interruption, which that's just rude. And so in this passage, they're dealing with the same thing we were, de we're dealing with today. And they're dealing with a spirit of disunity that has taken place there within the church, as we're going to see right here. He says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind 
in the Lord. As it says in verse 2 of chapter 4, that's what we're going to deal with the next time we're together. And so what do you see here? You see, uh, you see that there's this disruption there's this attack, there's this disunity, but there's also false teachers coming after the, after the church. Go over here to chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. False teachers. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I, I want to say something to you. you may, this may be the first time you've ever tuned in to the Journey Church or the Transformative Truth podcast. I want to, I want to just tell you something that you need to understand about this ministry. We, we do not subscribe uh, to the latest books that are read and the latest thoughts that are made about the church. Uh, we, don't, we don't buy into thinking outside of the box or the cutting edge. When I interpret Scripture and when I study the Bible, I study the Bible as what I, I believe the Spirit of God is teaching me in the context of Scripture. But I always always, without exception, study what I have learned in the context of Christian history. I always go back and I look in the context of Christian history, men of God who have gone before me hundreds of years that were men who believed in the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture godly men to see what do they have to say about it. Sometimes I may agree, I may not agree, but most of the time I do agree. And as the Spirit has never changed, He's the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. God has not changed. He, he cannot change. So we do every message we prepare in the light of what the church has, has taught historically in the context of Scripture. And, and what's sad to me is that there are so many who will not bear up under that. They say it's too academic, it's too heady, you need to teach from your heart. I was reminded recently someone made a question, asked a question. I asked them a question and they said, well, you don't know my heart. And I, I was feeling a little bit snarky and I said, well, I know one thing about your heart, it's deceitful and wicked above all things. Why, why would you say that? Because it's in the Bible. And so when you think about the heart being deceitfully wicked, it, we don't come to church to make up stuff to make you feel good. We come to church to teach you what will make you holy. And the only way to preach is to preach the Word of God under the leading of the Holy Spirit in the context of Scripture backed up by the historical evangelical church. And so that's what kind of preacher I am. I've been doing it 20 years. I've never departed from that. I've tried, but I just can't. I just keep going back. Not a lot of people want to listen to that kind of stuff. They want to go hear, as Paul told Timothy, the things that scratch their ear. I want to be prepared for a city that's coming, for a kingdom I belong to now. I want my life to be holy. I want my works to matter, not to glorify me, but to glorify the God whom I serve. Okay? That's just so you understand that. The Philippian church was dealing with this. False teachers had come in. False teachers had come in. And I have seen this personally, by the way. I, I want to say this to you as well. I, I used to belong to a, a, a once very great denomination. 
and they had a marvelous mission sending agency and they would go into foreign countries and they would plant seminaries and they would take men and women from the United States that had master's degrees and doctor degrees and they would go to those seminaries all around the world and train indigenous people where they were and confer upon them degrees and educate them in the context and history of the church, exposition, all of the things necessary for, for a good faithful ministry and, uh, and then those indigenous people would go out and evangelize their own people and be fully equipped to do this. I've also now been to those very seminaries that that once great denomination has abandoned. And I have been over there and taught for that denomination's seminaries, two of them to be as a matter of fact, were in those places that once that denomination owned where the men don't even have anything other than the Bible to study. And you take them to a passage like in John 6 where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And they believe that is a permission to be a cannibal. Now that's one thing to you that may be absurd, but when you're on an island in Indonesia where they practice cannibalism, you can see you can see where there is a problem. And the reality of it is, is simply this. What has happened in those places is that false teachers have come in behind the good work. False teachers have led them away into, this, and into the paranormal and into mysticism and to, into a spirituality that's not godly but in fact satanic. And they have robbed the people of the glory of God with the glory of man and, and His own signs and wonders that He can cook up. And the reality of it is that's what was taking place here. The church in America is under the same threat. It is under the same threat. And, if, and Paul is telling them to stand firm. To stand firm. Because they're under attack. But perhaps the most serious threat Perhaps, though, the most serious threat that has come against this Philippian church is the dispute between these two prominent women. As I read in verse 2, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, and I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, what was taking place is a dispute threatened to split the church into rival factions. The situation was compounded by the failure of the elders and the deacons to deal with it. I want you to know everything that we do in the Journey Church, whenever we even hear of somebody grumbling, the elders meet. We discuss it. We did it this week. If somebody has something to say, we find that it, is, it might be detrimental to the body, we meet and we talk about it. There's three men that know. And living in a small town, you, you know, I learned this when I moved here. You can't talk about anybody. Somebody's going to know about it. And it, so, you know, the thing is, is folks kind of got it figured out. If you're talking, we're going to know about it. And we'll do something about it. Because we must maintain the body. We must maintain the spirit of the body. And, and usually, those folks, they either get happy or they get gone. That's just what happens. They were dealing with this problem in, in the Philippian church and they weren't dealing with it. They had it, they weren't dealing with it, and Paul has come to say, stand firm. And as a result of those destabilizing factors, some of the Philippians had failed to trust God and had given way to anxiety. So what has happened? 
Let me just give it to you all in context. We're talking about the urgency for standing firm. They have been assaulted by the temptations of the world. The flesh is vulnerable. The devil has a lion-like aggression. They are a people that are experiencing persecution. There are false teachers in their midst, and there is division in the congregation. And as a result, people have become anxious. Look at verse 6. It says right there, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. So why were they anxious? Why were they anxious? Because of this total assailment that was coming against the church. Worldly temptation. The flesh is vulnerable. The lion-like aggression of the devil. There was persecution. There were the false teachers. There was division in the congregation. So they, what, what was happening? They were being anxious. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. Be anxious for nothing. Friend, to be anxious is to sin. That's why there is an urgency to stand firm. But number two, number two, the consistency of standing firm. There's an urgency for standing firm because of the times in which we live. There is the consistency of standing firm as revealed in the New Testament. A concern for believer spiritual stability permeates the entire New Testament. I want you to write this down, please. Spiritual stability is a must for the believer. Spiritual stability is a must for the believer. Standing firm is a must for the believer. After a Gentile church was founded in Antioch, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to them. And when he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord in Acts 11.23. Stand firm. Remain resolute. Remain resolute to what you've been taught. Thus the first apostolic message. Listen. The first apostolic message to the Gentiles, to the Gentile church, was to be spiritually stable. It was to stand firm. Stand firm. As part of their ministry, Paul and Barnabas, it says in Acts 14.22, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Act like men, he says, and be strong and stand firm in the faith. He extorted the Galatians, in Galatians 5.1 saying, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. In the passage dealing with spiritual warfare, Paul three times commanded the Ephesian believers to stand firm. Just turn back to the left to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the end, the perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Let me show you something, these cufflinks. I found these. I like to wear cufflinks, but these cufflinks, if you're, you're, you're listening, you won't be able to see these. My kids are going to want these. They're, it's, uh, it's, the, uh, it's a man dressed in the armor of the Lord. And it has all of the, the uh, spiritual armor written on it. And I figure, well, you know, that's a pretty good cufflink. It, it matches any color I wear. And, and uh, I thought, you know what, that's what I'm going to wear. I'm going to wear my be clothed in the armor of God cufflinks. It means something to me. It needs to mean something to you. We're commanded to do it. Paul told them to stand firm. Earlier in, in this epistle in Philippians, he expressed his desire for the Philippians that they remain stable. Listen to this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Listen, if two people cannot be of the same mind, they can't walk together. That's Amos 3.3. That's Amos 3.3. To the Colossians, Paul wrote, For even though I am absent from the body, nevertheless I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 5. Paul was so concerned about the spiritual stability of the churches under his care that he wrote the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3. Now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. If you stand firm in the Lord. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.15 he says, So then brethren stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught whether by word or by mouth or by letter from us. That's not all. James describes a person who lacks spiritual, uh, spiritual stability as a double-minded man. He is unstable in all of his ways in James 1 verse 8. And he chose out of his first epistle, or I'm sorry, he closed out of his first epistle. Peter pleaded, I have written you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, he says in 1 Peter 5.12. In his second epistle, Peter warned false teachers who were inciting unstable souls. Listen, if you're dealing with anxiety in the church, if you're worried about, well, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? I'm going to tell you something. You have somehow, you have somehow fallen victim by something that is inciting your soul to be unstable. The church belongs to God. It's His bride. He's going to take care of His bride. The church is under attack but the church isn't going to lose. God's remnant is not going to be abandoned. He is not going to leave us as orphans. We have the whole book of Revelation, which can be translated into two words. We win. We win. 
Peter also cautioned believers to beware that the untaught and the unstable, false teachers who distort Paul's inspired epistles as they also, as do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the errors of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. That's 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17. Listen, my entire doctoral dissertation was on an educated ministry. Um, I spent eight years working on that to get the degree, to publish it. I will never believe anything otherwise. Unprincipled men, unstable men, untaught men, what do they do? They cause spiritual instability in the church. They cause, they cause people to cease from standing firm. They cause them to be anxious because whatever they say is not backed up with Scripture. It's not backed up by the Spirit. And it's not backed up in the historicity and the context of the church. You say, that's tradition. No, it's not. It's godly men. Godly men who have left as a record their sermons and their commentaries. Men who have believed God with all of their hearts. They have given their lives to the gospel of Jesus Christ for no other gain than the glory of God Himself. Their mission statement is our mission statement. To preach Christ crucified. There was no other reason they lived. We don't have to come up with a theory. What are we having church for? We preach Christ crucified. Who are we? Men and women in Christ Jesus. That's our identity. Called to believe. Chosen of God. But the Bible says that we must stand firm. Even at the end, Jude reminds the believers that God wants to make them stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. With great joy. Can you imagine standing firm in the presence of God with great joy? That's Jude 24. But you see, spiritual instability leads to disappointment. It leads to doubt. It leads to discouragement. And it leads to an ineffective witness. And so the result is this. Unstable people are likely to be crushed by the trials of life. Unstable people are likely to be crushed by the trials of life. And they are so susceptible to fall to temptation. They will easily fall to temptation. There's actually a word and an illustration in the Old Testament it's a little arcane, may not be familiar to a lot of you, but you can read about it in Genesis 49, where in the Old Testament of an unstable person who fell into sin was a man named Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob. And this is what Jacob said to Reuben. He said, unstable as water you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it he went up to my couch he was a fornicator Reuben's instability led him to commit fornication with one of Jacob's concubines that's in Genesis 35:22 and as a result we read about it in 1 Chronicles 5:1 he lost his birthright the very birthright he was to have to be blessed as the firstborn, 
He lost it. He lost it as Jacob's firstborn son. He lost the blessing of his father because he was unstable as water. No wonder the New Testament, full of blessings, admonishes us, encourages us, and teaches us over and over and over again that we are to stand firm with consistency. The consistency of standing firm. And if you're going to stand firm, that also means you're going to avoid instability, being unstable. Scripture exhorts believers to stand fast in several things. You might just want to write these verses down to look at them later. The believers are to stand fast in the faith. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Believers are to stand fast in the liberty of Christ. Not only are they to stand fast in the faith, but they're to stand fast in their liberty of Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not untangled again, entangled again to the yoke of bondage, as it says in Galatians 5.1. Believers are to stand fast in one spirit, in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel, as it says in Philippians 1.27. Believers are to stand fast in the Lord, which is the secret to peace, which is right here in verse 1. Look what it says. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You see, that's how you standing fast in the Lord is the secret of peace. I don't have a care in the world when I stand fast in the Lord. I don't have a care in the world. And neither will you. And believers, last of all, are to stand fast and hold to the teachings or doctrines that have been taught. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or epistle. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2.15. So you have the urgency for standing firm, the times we live in. You have the consistency of standing firm as revealed in the New Testament. And last of all, you have the persistency in standing firm the persistency in standing firm, that is, the motivation. The motivation. In this passage, Paul addresses the vital question of how believers can be spiritually stable. Notice the word stand firm is the Greek word stiko, S-T-E-K-O, stiko. It means it's the, it, it is the main verb used in verses 1 through 9. It's an imperative. It's a command with a military ring to it. Like soldiers in the front line, believers are commanded to hold their position while under attack. We read about this in Ephesians 11, and the devil and his fiery darts. They are not to collapse under the persecution, under persecution and compromise, to fail under testing and complain, or to yield to temptation and sin. They're to stand firm. They're to hold fast. And the passage opens with the transitional word, therefore, which indicates Paul is about to build on what he has just written. And I've shown you all of the difficulties they faced up to this point. And in the preceding passage, verses 12 through 21, it describes the believer's pursuit of Christ's likeness, which is both the goal in this life and the prize of the next. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Now, 
Not that I have already obtained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything, if and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk in the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Then he goes on in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ." whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, He says... Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So there you have it. You have it right there. He shows the goal in this life and the prize in the next. The Lord Jesus provides the perfect example of this firmness for us who await our perfection. He faced persecution, but He never compromised. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, it says, "...He endured the hostility by sinners against Himself." His own creation nailed Him to the cross. He was tempted in all things, but yet was without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. And facing more severe trials than any believer will ever undergo, Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus Christ is the perfect model of standing firm that the believers are to follow. Is He your model? Is He your model? Note the term used by Paul in his opening phrase. He says, My brothers, beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. And again, he uses the word beloved. Truly, Paul loved the people of Philippi. These words express Paul's glorious, loving, pastoral concern over them. Paul's statement was not contrived. It was not manipulative. It was not dishonest flattery. He loved them. It was the expression of his heart. Yet he was about to give the Philippians a very strong exhortation. Philippians has always meant a lot to me to read because I, I believe that it is a book that tells us much about pastoring. And I say a lot of hard things to the congregation I serve and that I have served, but I don't think they've ever had to doubt that I love them. But if they have, I can assure you, I don't do anything but love them. They are the first and the last thought on my mind. In fact, the congregation I pastor right now, the Journey Church, this week is seven years old. It's seven years old as I'm finishing the 20th, 20th year of my ministry. I've pastored them longer than anyone, any one group of people, and there's a group of them that I've been their pastor this June 10 years. I'm so proud of them. I love them and I am so grateful, I am so grateful that they have, they have gone the distance uh, 
and we have many, many more decades to go. But he tells them something that is not contrived. This is not dishonest flattery. This is not manipulative. It was the expression of his heart. But because it was the expression of his heart, he loved them. He needed to give them a strong exhortation. So he perfected it by affirming his love and care for them. Years ago, when I was studying management at Texas Tech University, which is my, where I got my bachelor's degree, we studied how to bring correction to people. And years later, a book came out called Who Moved My Cheese? And if you want to move someone's cheese, you always start with a compliment. You always come up to them and you speak to them in a good way where you don't, that you win them. And then you bring correction. You don't make it personal. You bring correction and then you reaffirm them. That's exactly what Paul's done here. He is moving their cheese. He is about to strongly rebuke them from being anxious. And he tells them how much he loves them. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time on what this means, this, this uh, affection that he reveals. So first of all, he called them his beloved. Now I want you to understand this. This word is very important. Beloved is the um, adjectival form of the richest, deepest, and strongest Greek word for love. So you can't say love is an adjective any stronger than beloved. It's, a, it's an adjective, a beloved person. It modifies a noun. There is no stronger word for love than beloved. Okay? So he really, really loved them. And Paul had a special and a unique love for the Philippians. He says, I thank my God over in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your per participation in the glory from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You all are partakers of grace with me for God is my witness how I long for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment. He loved them. He loved them. And his loving concern for the Philippians' firmness caused him to send his beloved co-worker Timothy and Epaphroditus to Philippi. And we read about that in chapter 2. And the love bond between Paul and the Philippians was intensified by their faithful financial support. They supported him out of their poverty. They supported him out of their poverty. They, they may not have had... Uh, they were being persecuted. They, they probably were not doing well financially, and yet they supported him. And, and that's one of the reasons he loved the church so much. They took care of him. God used them. He gave them the special blessing to be like the widow's might. They gave out of their poverty, not out of their excess. Furthermore, in expressing his love for them, Paul added the phrase, whom I long to see. You'll notice that in the text. Beloved, whom I long to see, which translates another adjective. Thus the entire phrase says, My beloved and longed for brethren. It's properly interpreted straight into the English in the New King James Version. My beloved and longed for brethren. That's exactly what it says. But not only did he call him his beloved, he called him his joy. 
not only did Paul love the Philippians, but he also, they also were his joy. His joy did not arise, did not arise from circumstances when he wrote the Philippians because he was under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Praetorian guard. Some preachers motivated by jealousy for Paul were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. We read about that in Philippians 1.17. But instead, Paul found joy in the people whom he loved. In the Thessalonian letter, Paul wrote, as it says in chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 in 1 Thessalonians, For who is our hope and joy or crown or exultation? It is not even you. Is it not even you? in the presence of the Lord Jesus at His coming, for you are our glory and joy. I'm going to tell you one of the things that's going to be marvelous for this preacher is to see all of the people that I've ministered to over the course of my life that, that believed the gospel and were saved. That's what Paul's talking about. Having planted these churches amongst these Gentile pagans, these people believed, it, it's going to be a joy to watch. When I take people to Israel today, the joy of, of going to Israel for me is not walking where Jesus walked again and again. I love that, but it's watching people walk there and see their expressions the first time. I love watching them. I've got a coffee drinking buddy the last time I went with a group, and, and uh, he and I sat there and drank coffee and watched everybody, and it was just a just an amazing thing to watch just the glory of God. Watch the people as you drive up into Jerusalem. It just makes me thrilled to watch people. Paul is using this same illustration. He says, to see you enter glory at the coming of Jesus, for you are our glory and our joy. Only a pastor can say that. And boy, was this man a pastor. Last in, last in the same epistle, he added, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all of the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9? Well, the joy of seeing his beloved Philippians grow more like Jesus moted, motivated Paul's exhortation to stand firm, and it was the reason they were his joy. But last of all, he called them his crown. His crown. The Philippians were not only his beloved and his joy, but they were his crown. The Philippians were his Stephanos. The Greek word for crown is Stephanos. It does not refer to a royal crown, but to a laurel wreath given to the victor in an athletic event. It's actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25 or given to those honored uh, by their peers, much as a trophy or a plaque is given today. A Stephanos, a crown. Such an honor would be given at a feast where he would receive this wreath, or this plaque, or this award. The Philippians were Paul's trophy or wreath of honor. And they were proof. They were proof. Listen, this is very important. They were proof of his effective service. They were proof of His effective service. So what are we to do? So what are we to do? That, that, you got all that out of verse 1. Yeah. Yes. What are we to do? What are the beloved to do in light of this? Can a believer even stand fast today? The world's different. Social media. 24-7 news cycle, constant barrage of information. 
Can a believer even stand fast? We're living truly in troubling times. The temptations to surrender is appealing. The trials that we face are absolutely terrible. Where can the believer find the strength to stand fast? Where can you, where can I find the strength to stand fast? What can we do to help not only ourselves stand fast, but what can we do to help other believers as well? Well, as we finish, there are two places. There are two places. First of all, there is the believer's source of strength. The believer's source of strength is not his knowledge. It's not his character. It's not his integrity. It's not his uh, value system. The strength of the believer is his Lord. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the text. Stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. There's only one place the believer can stand fast, and that's in the Lord. The believer must be living and moving and having his being in the Lord. That is, he must be praying and talking and sharing with the Lord all day long, keeping his thoughts upon the Lord. The glorious salvation, the hope, the mission that has been given to the believers serving and ministering for the Lord, bearing testimony of Him and meeting the needs of those who hurt and need, and need help. So when a believer is walking in the Lord throughout the day, his minds and thoughts are upon the Lord. So his strength comes. He stands fast in the Lord. But number two, there is the encouragement you and I can give as believers to other believers. It is essential that brothers and sisters in Christ who love and care about fellow believers need to care about them standing fast. We need to care that each one of us stands fast. Note how Paul, the minister, feels about his flock, how deeply he feels for those under his care. He calls them my dearly beloved brothers in whom I long to see. The thing to see is this, the need of the believer is simply believers need personal encouragement. They need personal encouragement. If believers are to stand fast, they must be loved and cared for by, by other believers. I can't take care of all of them in our church. I can't take care of all believers. I can't take care of all of you that are listening to us online or through podcast or watching. But you know believers that can encourage you to stand fast. If believers are to stand fast, they must love and care for other believers. They need to encourage them because nothing encourages us more than knowing that we are loved and cared for by others. Isn't that true? Nothing encourages us more to know that somebody cares. Somebody cares. They care enough to speak into me that I can stand fast, that I can stand firm, that I can with persistency keep on standing. And the love of others stirs us to live like we should and to stand fast against temptation and trial. So in conclusion, you can stand fast in the Lord and be encouraged to do so. And I hope you have felt that today. 
I hope that you know that today. I hope you believe that today. The question naturally arises, though, how? Because, see, I've not explained to you how. Paul's command to stand firm is implemented to bring about spiritual stability. We have only done verse 1, and Paul introduces, has introduced us to the need for spiritual stability, but he answers how to do it. He tells us how to do it in verses 2 through 9. And he hits seven basic principles that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. These are practical principles, and here's what, here, what, here are what they are. In verses 2 through 3, we're going to learn that spiritual stability can be had by cultivating harmony in the church fellowship, by maintaining a spirit of joy, it says in verse 4, by learning to be content in the first part of verse 5, by resting on the confident faith in the Lord, by resting on a confident faith in the Lord in, verse, in the second half of 5 and the first half of 6, by reacting to problems with thanksgiving in 6 and 7, by thinking on godly virtues in verse 8, and then by obeying God's standard in verse 9. So that's what we're going to be studying the next seven weeks as we have introduced this need to all of us today. And so I want to pray for you, and then I want to leave you with a blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this Word of truth, this transformative truth that changes lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us clearly through your word this morning the necessity of, of this, this true need of spiritual stability, that we are, in fact, in great need of standing firm in these troublesome times. I pray that everyone that hears this message, Father, will be motivated to turn to you and to stand firm in the Lord. And that, Lord, you would be so gracious as they have made that choice to do so, that you would send someone, a minister, a brother or a sister in Christ to encourage them all the more to keep on standing, standing firm. I pray, Father, for those who do not know yet Jesus Christ, that, Lord, you would call them as, you have, as anyone who is hearing this message right now, Here's the gospel. It is Christ alone who saves. It is, it is uh, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Him. But Father, there is an inward call. It is a call that I can resist. It is an inward call that I can resist, but I cannot resist it to the degree that you cannot overwhelm it. And I pray, Father, that you would overwhelm people with grace as they have heard the gospel, as they have heard the scripture today. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray, Father, that you would allow the joy of Paul to be even completed today as we have used the words that he was given by the Holy Spirit, that he may even also see those today who come to Christ on the hearing of His beloved joy for them and crown, enter into the gates of heaven, having trusted Christ as their Savior effectively. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now I want to read to you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
And may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace in your lying down and your rising up, in your going out and in your coming in, in your labor and your leisure, and in your laughter and in your tears. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.